You are now listening to the September 10th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saint. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the Twelve Apostles. Today, we will learn about the Apostle Nathaniel. The name Nathaniel appears in the book of John. In the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are known as the Synoptic Gospels, the name Bartholomew is used to refer to the same person. We know that by looking at the pairing of certain apostles in the Bible. In the Bible, the Apostle Philip always appears with another apostle. And this other apostle is called Bartholomew in the Synoptic Gospels and Nathaniel in the book of John. Bartholomew does not appear where Nathaniel appears, and Nathaniel does not appear where Bartholomew appears. Either Bartholomew or Nathaniel is always paired with Philip. Therefore, biblical scholars have come to an agreement that Bartholomew and Nathaniel must be one and the same person. The name Nathaniel means given by God. Likewise, some say it also means gift of God. Bartholomew simply means the son of Tholomew. Bar in Bartholomew refers to a son. Placing Bar in front of the father's name to refer to a son was a common practice at that time. Peter's original name is Simon Barjona, and Barjona means son of Jonah. In the same manner, the name Bartimaeus means the son of Timaeus. So the meaning of the name Bartholomew means the son of Tholomew. The meaning of the name Tholomew is abounding water in furrows. As such, it is the name that signifies abundance. Perhaps Nathaniel's father, Tholomew, was well known. It seems like people recognized Nathaniel more when he was called as the son of Tholomew. So it appears the name Bartholomew was used in the Synoptic Gospels so that first-time Bible readers or the listeners at the time when written Bibles were scarce would know who he was. Then, John simply used his real name, Nathaniel, in the book of John. The record of Apostle Nathaniel is rather limited in the Bible. Still, we will try to glean spiritual lessons that the Lord gives us through Nathaniel. Nathaniel apparently was a close friend of Philip, and we learned about Philip last time. Philip went to his friend Nathaniel and told him the following. In John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip said to his friend Nathaniel, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Then Nathanael offered a response that seems rather prejudiced. In John chapter 1 verse 46, Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nathanael replied back with skepticism. What good thing could come out of Nazareth? In a Korean translation, the Message Bible, 
This reply is recorded as Nazareth, you must be joking. We need to discuss the geographical and cultural background to understand the context in which his reply was made. Nathaniel was from Cana in Galilee. Cana and Nazareth are close in proximity. It takes about 15 minutes today by car. At the time, both Cana and Nazareth were small villages in the countryside with not too many people, and those living there would know if anything out of the ordinary happened in the other village. Apparently, Nathaniel had never heard of any special child coming out of Nazareth while he was growing up in Cana. In essence, this is what he was saying. Jesus of Nazareth? I never heard of anyone great in Nazareth while I was growing up. Now you tell me the Messiah has come out of that small village? That's nonsense. If the Messiah, the true king of Israel, is going to come out of anywhere, it should be from a big city like Jerusalem where great things happen. As you can see, Nathaniel had his prejudices and was skeptical. We all carry our prejudices and could have biases in our spiritual walk as well. Some of us tend to focus on the logic presented in the Bible and take more of an intellectual approach to understand the Bible. Still, others focus on the emotional side and emphasize personal experiences and power through prayers. Some of us call ourselves conservative Christians, while others call themselves progressive Christians. Some of us insist that people must observe and keep Christian traditions, while others point out the freedom we have in Christ beyond any Christian traditions. Some of us insist that spreading the gospel is most important, while others insist that taking care of those that are less fortunate in our communities is more important. In his book, Balanced Christianity, Pastor John Stott introduces the Christianity that focuses more on balance and less on prejudices. He addresses different types of balances we should seek as Christians. First is the balance between intellect and emotions. Jesus had the keen intellect in the words of God, but he also had kind feelings towards those that came to listen to him. He would cry for his people. Second is the balance between conservatism and progressivism. Jesus was a conservative who adhered to the words of God, but he was also a progressive who urged reform to the Jewish leaders who were in leadership at the time. Third is the balance between traditionalism and modernism. Jesus valued baptism and institutionalizing the Lord's Supper. He saw the importance of traditions in the community of faith. At the same time, he also emphasized the new ways of worship through a home church during the period of early churches. Fourth is the balance between the spreading of the gospel and participating in social actions. Jesus instructed us to spread the gospel. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. He also gave us a new commandment that emphasized the importance of taking part in caring for the less fortunate in our society. In John 
chapter 13, verse 34, he told us to love one another. Further, Pastor Chuck Swindoll once said that as we mature in faith, we should become more of fence-sitters. This does not mean that we compromise the truth, but it means we become fence-sitters who can embrace differing perspectives. Instead of emphasizing differences as black or white, we learn to empathize with those that hold different perspectives. That kind of perspective would mark our maturity in faith. I remember what St. Augustine from the 4th century said, In essentials unity, not essentials liberty, all things in charity. I hope we will all be able to bring unity in essentials, bring liberty to non-essentials, and embrace everything with love instead of harboring prejudices like Nathaniel. This concludes today's episode of the 12 Apostles of Jesus. We will continue on with the story of Nathaniel next week. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
Next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Creation Groans Like a Pregnant Lady. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Morning, church. God Himself is the treasure of all treasures that we look forward to in the future glory that is to come. That's what it means when it says that we are heirs of God. It means that God is the good that we look to above all else. There are many other great and glorious things that we would dare to even worship if we did not know that we were made to worship God. He will be their inheritance as they are to be his inheritance. As he himself will be all in all, so shall his children receive with him in his son everything for an inheritance. God is not just like some deified sugar daddy who gives you the good stuff. He is the sugar. He is the sweetest thing in all of creation, things seen and unseen. There is none like him. If we want a glorious vision of the things that await us, we need to understand that God is not just a means to good things. He is the good. See, the great treasure of heaven is God. And yet, verse 17 ends with this startling condition. You can't miss this. You'll notice it's attached to this receiving of the inheritance. It says, provided. It's like, uh uh-oh, a provision. That we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The language there is really communicating suffering then glory, not merely as a pattern for the Christian life. That's true. We too will suffer and then we will receive glory. We will experience the cross and then the crown. But it's saying more. It's saying that this is a kind of condition, an expectation of those who truly love Christ. We must suffer with him. Of course, if we suffer with Christ, that also means that Christ is with us. Did you catch that? If you are suffering with Christ, it means that Christ is with you in your suffering. He meets us in our sufferings. We are united with him. We are not alone in them. And Romans 18 to 25, 8, 18 to 25 is picking up on this, this theme of future glory. 
Paul is about to just wax eloquent about the nature of the value of this future. In fact, I love what one commentator, Tom Schreiner, said here. He said, the thesis of this section is that the future glories, they are so stunning and magnificent that they render present sufferings inconsequential. So here's our big idea this morning. Future glories dwarf a Christian's present suffering. Future glories dwarf a Christian's present sufferings. Now we see this first in in verse 18, which is kind of like a thesis sentence that's developing verse 17 that we just talked about. It's that children of God must suffer with Christ now to be glorified with him in the future. Notice what Paul says there again in verse 18. In verse 18, he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not worth it. Now, we've seen this word for consider in verse 18 before. It's a a math or accounting word where uh, you read it, you reckon credits and debits. On the lips of Paul, it actually drops as a, a kind of authoritative pronouncement about the nature that we're to look at the world around us. Now, the image here really reminds me of one of those old scales. You've probably seen it. It's like a kind of a, a balancing scale where you have two sort of platforms that you'll put stuff on. You've got these two chains that are connected to a central beam. And you put stuff on this side and it weighs it down. And then you put stuff on the other side and it sort of goes this way. And it's sort of a balance of what weighs more. Kind of like a seesaw, right? Like you've been to the park, you've got a seesaw with a kid. Maybe you have to kick a little bit more because you weigh a little bit more than the kid does. But here the comparison Paul has in mind is the sufferings of this present time on one side. It's just stacking the scale. And on the other side of this scale, you see the future glory that is to be revealed to us. Two piles of things that you're going to measure, that you're going to compare with one another. Now, sufferings, he mentions first, at this present time, they really do feel like heavy burdens, don't they? I mean, when you suffer, you probably have even had, even if it's an emotional suffering, a kind of visible strain that people can see, like, hey, are you okay? Why do you ask? Well, you don't look like you're okay. Why? Well, because I've got sort of something I'm I'm struggling with, I'm, I'm suffering over. And those sufferings, they can come in all kinds of forms, can't they? I mean, you'll remember that Paul has already talked about suffering over indwelling sin. We are fighting sin as we await the new bodies that are going to be free from sin and death. We have desires that are contrary to God's good intentions for humanity. Or what about suffering over unfulfilled desires for good things? Have you ever been that person? You desire a godly spouse, but it just hasn't happened. You want a child, a baby, but you're not able to have a baby. Or maybe you just want a really good friend, one that you can talk to that it seems like you just want to talk to ever and the conversation never end and you just never had that kind of friend. We suffer over good things that we lack. We, we suffer with physical pain, sickness. Paul is not here trying to minimize the suffering that you experience, the suffering of God's children. Paul's not minimizing your suffering. The suffering that you're even thinking about this morning. 
And Paul's not telling Christians to kind of ignore their suffering as though they should just walk around and just act like everything's great. No, Paul's concern is that you don't allow the sufferings of this present time to cause you to lose sight of the future that awaits you and abandon Christ. See, true Christians persevere to the end because God preserves them. And part of that preserving, there are all kinds of ways and means that he uses to do that. His indwelling spirit, the church that you're a part of, and also the hope of the future that awaits you. But catch this, Paul says, no matter how great your sufferings are in this present life, no matter how big that pile is that you've built of all of the sufferings that are before you, though they may be innumerable, incalculable, they are, are you listening close? They are not worth comparing with a future glory that is to be revealed to us. Not equal, not close. Christian, we believe that Jesus is coming back for us and that our Savior who suffered and was glorified will glorify us. On the last day, He is going to give us new bodies, eternal bodies, not bodies plagued by sin and death and sinful appetites and broken down knees. We are going to have new bodies so that we might live with God in His presence forevermore. That's the future that we await. Jesus is going to restore all that is broken, all that is lost, all that seems irretrievable. God is going to restore. And Paul says the eternal way to future glory doesn't just make up for your present sufferings. Did you catch that? It crushes them. It's like hills or mountains in Phoenix, Arizona. Don't you love our mountains that are everywhere? I love them. I love to hike them. They're great. But if you look at, say, Thunderbird Mountain, a relatively average mountain, and you go and you look at Mount Everest, and then you look back at, at Thunderbird Hill, you realize it's not even worth comparing in grandeur and size and majesty. Well, that's really the kind of thing that Paul wants us to do here. Come and take a look. I, I know that those... Those sufferings that you've experienced, that you've stacked up, they sing so high. But you haven't seen the glory that's coming. You're not even going to have to do the math when you see the glory that's coming. Keep your eyes fixed on the glory that's coming. And more and more, you'll see that these things, not as big as they feel in the moment. The way future glory is so great that it's not even worth bringing your present sufferings over to the scale to compare them. Everything about this world will be made new. And that newness is so profound that we can't even imagine with fallen minds. It's hard for us to imagine what God has planned for us while still in these bodies of sin. But notice, Paul says, all things will be made new in verses 19 to 22. All things will be made new. So second, creation, you'll find in verses 19 to 22, it is groaning and hoping in future glory. It groans and hopes in future glory. Now, Paul is quickly, as he says this, talking about this comparison, turns his attention towards creation. Now, I think that he's speaking of non-willing creation. If you look down to verse 20, you'll notice he speaks of not willingly. I think that means that he's talking about everything from dirt to Komodo dragons to planets and stars. The, the created non-willing world. He's not talking about humans or angels here. He, he speaks of them elsewhere, not here. In creation, notice 
that it is being pictured is so intertwined with the future of the children of God in present sufferings and future glory. He's saying they're so intertwined in those realities. Notice again what he says. Look with me. We're going to read verses 19 to 22 again. He says this, beginning in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longings for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So here we find that Paul is speaking of an unwilling creation, and yet he personifies it. He treats it almost like a person who is waiting expectantly for something that is really good. He's not waiting in the sense of, I'm trying to get out of something really bad. That is true. The groaning speaks of that. But this willing expectation in verse 19 is talking about a longing for something really good that's coming. And then in verse 16, what we find is, uh, we find that in verse 16, but the world, we are told, cannot yet see the consummation that awaits God's children when they will receive their new glorious bodies. This is not the fullness of what is to come. There is more that awaits. Now, why is creation so excited about this? Well, you'll remember that in Genesis 3, Adam's sin, it not only impacted all of humanity, every human born after Adam, but we also find that it affected creation. So in Genesis 3.18, you'll remember that the ground is cursed and that it would now produce thorns and thistles that would make it hard for Adam to labor in the land. Here we find that this world has been subjected by Adam to, in our text, two things, futility and corruption. Now, futility is just describing creation's failure to fulfill its intended purpose. Creation doesn't operate on all cylinders in the way that it was created to. It is futile. But also, it's corrupt, and that points to the fact that it is decaying and dying. Decay and death plagues our world at this present time. But Genesis 3.15, you'll remember, right in the midst of the fall and the curses, we have this beautiful promise of an offspring who would come and undo the works of Satan. The, The works of sin for humanity and all of the fallenness that affected even creation itself. See, Jesus is that offspring who suffered and died and was raised from the dead in glory. He is that offspring that we've longed for. And Paul's explaining that Christ's work centers on the redemption of the children of God on the last day with new bodies. But that reality will also come with the redemption of all of creation. All of creation was affected by sin. All of creation will be affected by the redemption of Jesus Christ. This is a fallen world. Futile. It is a world that is still a world that is plagued by corruption. And yet, we as humans, any chance we get, drive planes, trains, and automobiles, and now Elon Musk is taking ships to the moon to view the glories of God's creation. It's so glorious, even in its fallen, futile, corrupt existence, that we are tempted to worship 
this world, and many do. They live for it. They worship it. We groan for the future glory in verses 23 to 25. It's not just creation that's doing it. It's the children of God that are doing it. Look again with me at verses 23 to 25. Here's what God's word says. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, we ourselves, here speaks of all Christians, that's all of those who have been justified by faith alone, as Paul has said previously in Romans 3. Those who have the indwelling Holy Spirit, as he mentioned in Romans 8.16. Those who have God as their heavenly Father, as he just said recently in chapter 8. There appears to be a kind of reversal that's taking place here, though. Did you catch that? In the Old Testament, God receives the first fruits of Israel's labors. But here... Christians have received the first fruit, specifically the gift of the Holy Spirit, as that first installment and guarantee of the future redemption that they await. Again, we're already adopted sons and daughters of God, but here Paul is pointing us to that not yet future consummation, finality of what it is that we have been waiting for. When Jesus returns to give us new glorified bodies, completely freed from the effects of sin and death. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, I just want to remind you yet again, the best is yet to come. Verses 24 to 25, they really, what they are trying to do is throw our attention into the future that awaits with a focus on hope. A beautiful, glorious word that means something very unique in Christianity. When we talk about hope, we're not talking about Wishful thinking. I hope I'm able to make it tomorrow. Probably won't. We're not talking about some kind of word that is made up based on human efforts and abilities to achieve it. No hope here in the Bible. It is in the promised future that awaits Christians. It is part of the basic starter package of biblical faith. Your faith comes with hope. Hope and a promised future promised by God. Now notice in verse 24 that Paul says this hope is the hope that we were saved into. Now that's the past, a past reality. And so often when Paul talks about salvation in the book of Romans, he's speaking of a future. But here we were saved in the past into this hope, and that hope is actually saying a hope of a future that is to come. So this is a kind of past event that pushes us forward into a future that's promised. This hope, Paul is saying, I believe, is an inevitable part of the Christian life that came with our conversion when we were saved in the past. It's a vision that looks to the future and the promises of God. Hope here does not mean a fanciful wish or a positive outlook on life. I'm hopeful, I'm happy. doesn't make sense with everything looks. No, it's not disconnected from the facts. This hope. Christians hope in a reality that already exists for us. It is kept in heaven. And it awaits the return of Christ. This hope is not something that we hope happens and appears in the future. It's something that's coming for us and to us. 
We hope in the future that God promises. We hope in fact. We hope in a new heavens and a new earth that we cannot see or taste or hear or smell or feel with the new resurrected bodies and we are waiting. But one day faith will become sight and our hopes will become halves. In verse 25, it is telling us, wait for it. Wait for it patiently might be better translated Wait with endurance. In other words, stay with Christ. Verse 17, stay with him. Stay with him amidst the trials that come your way. Abide in him. Can you imagine what it would be like to dwell in the presence of God forever as our great? Some applications, and I'll get to as many as I can. But I think what Paul is wanting us to do with this is actually help suffering saints make sure that their eyes are focused on the future that is to come. And so I want to just give you some practical applications. This is for those of you who are suffering right now and need to be helped. This is for those of you who will suffer, and that is, I believe, all of us in many ways. You need to be equipped. You might not feel your need for it today, but just take notes. You might need to go back and revisit them later. And then for those of you who are outside of Christ, I I hope that this brings encouragement and help and hope to you. First, First application, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that suffering is normal Christianity. It is not some aberrant form of Christianity. It is not Christianity on steroids. It is a natural thing to suffer in this life. It is a broken world. It does not work the way that it's supposed to. We're all familiar with Peter's words in 1 Peter 4.12 where he tells the church, Beloved, do not be surprised of the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange We're happening. And yet if we're honest, don't we often, our first response when something really painful happens is we're surprised? I thought I was living right. And it feels strange. Like, I don't think this is supposed to happen to people like me. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good at cross-referencing when I'm preparing for a sermon, but not so much when life gets hard. It, It takes time and prayer and meditation on the Word to remind me of the truths of who God is and the future that awaits Suffering, don't let it surprise you. It is a normal thing. It's a part of this world. Two, suffering is part of union with Christ. Now, so often I think our first response to suffering is we feel like, where did Jesus go? He was good and thing, he was here and things were good, and then he left, and that's when things got really bad. Now we know that that's not true theologically, right? We're in Christ. We're united with him. Now, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We're going to get there later in Romans 8. And yet, it feels as though suffering is some kind of proof that, that like God's not in it or with us. But in 1 Peter 4.13, we're told that instead of being surprised by trials, we should actually rejoice because insofar as you share Christ's suffering, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That word for share is a beautiful word, a, a word koinonia. It speaks of fellowship. And it says insofar as you are in fellowship and union with Christ and his sufferings, you're able to rejoice because you know that this doesn't mean that Christ is absent. He's actually more present with you in this suffering and it comes with the promise of future hope. You'll be glorified with him on the last day. There's a real sense in which we are fellowshipping with Christ and Christ with us when we are suffering and seeking to be faithful. Maybe fumbling, maybe tripping, maybe stumbling, but holding fast to Christ. 
This image of how Christ is with us reminds me of an Old Testament image. You've probably read the book of Daniel before. I know some of the youth have been through that with Kevin. In that book, you remember the image where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire because they would not bend the knee to anyone but Yahweh? It's while they're in the fire that they look in and they say like, wait a minute, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, like we did throw three guys in there. Did another guy sort of sneak in? No. Why is there four? Why do we have four guys in there? Reason is, is because God was with them in the fire. Was it the angel? Was it a Christophany? I'm arguing that. I'm just saying that we know that God is with his people in their suffering. It's a vision that we get there. Christ's presence with the child of God becomes more visible in the lives of God's servants as they suffer with Christ and for Christ. Third, God never misses your suffering. Not only is he with you, he also is paying attention. We know in verse 17, again, we suffer with Christ. Uh, Commentator Edmund Clowney says, Our trials are never forgotten by the Lord. He keeps his tears in his bottle. Now, Clowney is seeing a connection here to Psalm 56, 8, where David says, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Beautiful picture of the way that God not only pays attention to our sorrows, but he keeps track of them, record of them, he counts them, he keeps them. And each one of those becomes a kind of promise to the believer. In fact, when I visited Israel some years back, they would sell ancient little tear bottles, and that's what they held them for, was as a reminder that whatever sorrows the people of God go through, they are promises about future fulfillments of the way that God will bless his people, the way that he will return to them the the years that the locusts have eaten. Faithful tears are future investments, brothers and sisters. I know that we've got many of you who are suffering all kinds of different things today, and you might be thinking, nobody knows the pain. They don't understand the meaning behind the tears. God knows. He sees the tears that nobody else sees, and he understands what they mean, and he gives us a promise that the future Whatever the tears are, will wipe away every tear, every pain, and the future is incredibly bright. Not only does he wipe them away, but he spins them into heavenly gold. So grief, even our grief, serves an eternal purpose. It gives us hope for what God's going to do in the future. I mean, can God turn this thing that I'm grieving over so much into something that when I look back on it, it seems so small that it dwarfs it? God says, yes, absolutely. Fourth, sufferers need to keep Two days in mind. Today and the last day. Isn't that really what Paul is saying? You should have a kind of last day catalyst that wakes you up every morning to live each day. We listen to Jesus in Matthew 6, 34, who says, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We need to face the sufferings of this day head on. But we need to do that trusting in Christ, who will return on the last day to eradicate suffering, to undo all that's been done, restore all that's been lost. First Peter ends in 5.10 saying this, and this is a book to sufferers. After you have suffered a little while, and it doesn't matter how long you have suffered, in light of eternity, it will seem a little while. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
Sovereign Christians need to keep the hope of the future steady before their eyes. And here's the good news of the Bible. This world, this world that we are so tempted to worship is the basement, not the ceiling for me and you. The the future that we await is incredibly bright. We live in Phoenix, Arizona. It is sunny every day. Very bright. It goes from bright to really bright. And every day we wake up, we see a reminder that this is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us in Christ. He will be our son. I love what Scottish pastor Horatius Bonner wrote in the 19th century. He said, when God's children suffer, a really good book, When God's Children Suffer, every trouble, however light, comes fragrant with blessing. Shall we then overlook it or thrust it away? It's a new opportunity of getting nearer to God and learning more of his love. Fifth, expect dramatic return on suffering losses. Okay, here's where the math comes in again. It's really good. Suffering, I think, so often when you were struggling, it's about pain and losses. I have lost so much. I did not get as much as I thought I should. I don't deserve this because of that. We're doing a kind of accounting in our hearts. It's not fair. It's not right. We deserve this, got that. He got this, not that. Should have gotten something else. Why did I get this? But there's a kind of math that we need to be drawn to in the Bible. And and it comes from Jesus' mouth in Mark 10, 29 to 31. He gives a a profound promise. I think you could easily just read over and not, not really notice what he says. He says there in Mark 10, 29 to 31, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Hundredfold. Whatever you have given, a hundredfold returns. Now, Jesus promises a couple things here that I want us to think about. One, did you notice that God promises you will not only recoup your losses at the resurrection, that's true, but you will receive it back a hundred times. I'm not really that great at math anymore. I used to love math, but I had to figure this out online. I think that works out to a 10,000% return. Did you catch that? Suffering seems so light, I mean, so heavy. Jesus said, hey, wait a minute. Whatever this works out to, this is 10,000 times better. Now, if you saw Mount Everest, Thunderbird Mountain, like it's clear the math, like this is better, right? I think this defines the nature of Paul's promise in Romans 8, 28, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And that's at least speaking of suffering, bad things that work out for good things. Six, remember that the sufferings are light and momentary. Second Corinthians 4, 17, Paul writes this, for this light and momentary affliction is that he is preparing, in this he is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Light and momentary. Not the way I usually receive pain and suffering. Usually feels heavy and long until it's over. And then I'm like, oh, you know, it, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was in the moment. When I thought, in the moment, I thought it was really bad. But now that actually wasn't as bad of a season because there was this other season, that kind of thing. I think about Paul and the sufferings that he went through. Beaten. He was imprisoned. He was defamed. He was mocked. And yet, in all of those things, finally died for Christ. And he says all of these great things, light and momentary, compared with what is to come. 
Now that seems wrong at first blush, but it's that second part that explains the first. The eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Does it sound like the same kind of math that he's working out as he's doing in Romans 8? See, when we understand the dramatic turn that's coming, present suffering seems smaller. In fact, the more that we grow in understanding the weight of the coming glory, the more it tips the scales of our present sufferings. We need to draw on that future account that awaits us. Finally, I just want to be clear that this kind of suffering then glory, suffering now in this present time, future glory with God forever, that is a promise that only comes to those that are in Christ. You'll remember that the book of Romans begins with all of humanity under the wrath of God. In other words, the sufferings of this life are just a preamble to the greater suffering that comes for those who are outside of Christ. But those who are in Christ, what awaits us are glories that we can't even begin to imagine. He gives us some small handles, but we aren't even able to conceive of the great things that God has for his people in his presence forevermore. So if that's you this morning, you don't know Christ, you've not put your faith in Christ, you're not justified by faith alone, the Holy Spirit is not indwelling you, you don't know God as your Father, then the one thing that I would ask and beg you to do today is put your faith in Jesus Christ. Become a child of God. Experience the future that awaits you. That's my hope for you. If you want to talk about that, I or a number of people in this room would love to talk to you about what it means to put your faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you for the future that awaits us. Father, we know that this world is full of suffering. But Father, we know that any suffering that this world brings, it will on that last day and forevermore seem so small in comparison to the majestic Mount Everest-like glories that you have awaiting for your people forever in Christ. So Lord, help us to be a patient people. Help us as a church to be known for waiting on you, trusting you, even when things are hard. Father, I pray for the saints in this room, Lord. Lord, hold us fast until that great day when your son returns. And if there are those that are here that do not know you today, Father, we pray that they would fly to Christ and put their faith in him once and for all. In your name we do pray. Amen. Scripture, majesty in front.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. I'm sure you recognize in some relationships, there's obviously some knowledge of one another, and there's also communication. Now, just in a very basic sense, there are good relationships, and there are okay relationships, and there are bad relationships. Now, if you've come into a true relationship with Jesus Christ through repentance and faith in the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you on the cross, would you consider your relationship with Jesus a good relationship? Would you say it's an okay relationship, a bad relationship? How would you consider your relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, in a good relationship with Jesus Christ, as his disciples, we should be, as Jesus said, bearing much fruit. In a good relationship with Jesus Christ, we should be, as his disciples, useful. Useful. We should be serving him, doing his bidding, being useful and bearing fruit. Now, unfortunately, there are many who believe they have a good relationship with Jesus Christ, but that's simply their profession. There's no true relationship because they're still in their sins. The Lord Jesus will say on that day, those who have done many things in his name, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. They were self-deceived. They thought they had a relationship with Jesus. Now, for those of us who do have a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith in him, with that in mind... Is our relationship useful and fruitful? How do we evaluate our relationship with Christ? Well, today we're going to see how we can know if we have a useful and fruitful relationship with the Lord Jesus. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Second Peter? And we are in our study of Second Peter, and we are in just a tremendous portion of this book. And I'm just going to briefly, I've shared it more in depth each week, but I'm going to briefly speak of the context for this book. Peter is writing to those who have a like faith, a same faith as he does, a true faith, a saving faith. And within that, the Apostle Peter has made it clear in this letter that he is reminding those he is writing of the things that they already know, that they might be able to recall them to mind when he is gone. You see, the Apostle Peter, it's been made clear to him by the Lord that he's not going to be on this earth much longer. And so these are his last words, and they're very important words. And within this letter and this reminder, he shares the truths of a real relationship with Jesus Christ. What does that look like in contrast to those who are a threat to that real relationship? Those who distort or pervert the word or twist things or subtly bring in things to the church, subtly try to deceive true believers. And so this letter is an encouragement, a reminder, and it's also a warning that we could fall from our steadfastness, but instead of that, being on the alert, we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This letter is a very important reminder. So with that in mind, do you want your relationship with Jesus to be useful and fruitful? Do you think you have a relationship with him? Maybe as you evaluate your life, you realize maybe it's not. Maybe it's not useful and fruitful as I think about it. Well, how can we have a useful and fruitful relationship with him? And how can we know if it is that way that we're not self-deceived? Again, turn to Second Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 7. 
And I need to remind you that really this portion from 2 to 11 and 12 is really, I mean, it just keeps going, is one block. And so, you know, we've already gone through verses 2 and 4, and I'm going to review that today. But also what we're going to see after 8 through 11 is very important. It goes with what we're looking at today. And I just couldn't fit it all in. So we're just going to look at verses 5 to 7, 5 to 7. And so with that in mind, let's read back and start at verse 2 and up through verse 12, even though we'll be looking at 5 to 7. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And then our passage. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. And that's where we're going to stop today, but it connects to what I'm going to read now. We need to have that in mind. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, we're going to see all of them. If all of them are yours and all of them are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his former purification from sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Tremendous passage. I wish we could go through the whole thing together, uh, but keep in mind the verses 8 and on really connect to what we're going to look at today in verses 5 through 7. But this passage is extremely important, as was what we saw last week. These are Peter's last words, and I want to share some reasons also why this particular passage today is so important for us to understand and to grasp rightly. First of all, we're going to see it points to the reality of spiritual growth. And it points to that in the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And indeed, we're going to gain, I believe, a right view of how God works out salvation in us, i.e. sanctification. And we need to understand that in the context of spiritual growth, what God has done and provided for is there is a responsibility for us, as we're going to see in that context. And thus, I believe if we understand it rightly, we're going to gain a balanced view concerning spiritual growth. Secondly, as we look at this from a biblical perspective, it may reveal to some of you that you've never grown in Christ. And that may be an evidence you have never trusted Christ. You see, as we're going to see, these qualities should have been yours at some time. Now, some people say, well, maybe they're backsliding. Well, if you've never gone anywhere, you can't slide back. So the reality is that some of you may realize I've never trusted Christ as evidenced by what his word says. And that's a good thing so that you might trust him and be saved and be changed. And third, 
we need to understand and understanding what true spiritual growth looks like is an extremely helpful blessing. And it is an assurance of salvation. It's an assurance that God has really changed you, that he is manifesting the character of his son in your life. A tremendous encouragement. And lastly, and very important, because Peter is writing at a time where there are false teachers who were preying on these believers. Read chapter 2. It's very significant. Promising them freedom from fleshly desires, but yet putting them into the corruption that ensues from yielding to your own desires. These false teachers perverted and twist the word, and they exhibit in their character the opposite of what Peter talks about here. So you can spot real ones and phonies through what we see here in our passage today. Okay, with that in mind, how can we know if we have a useful and fruitful relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, we need to review what we saw last week, and I want to briefly go through verses 2 to 4. You might remember that Peter is writing to those, verse 1, of those who have a same or like faith. The same faith that he has. You see, if you have truly been saved, we all have the same faith. We have been convicted of our sin. We have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we have been redeemed. We have been saved. We've been forgiven of our sins. And within that, he then shares a greeting. And that's what this portion is basically based on. Verses 2 to 4 are basically that greeting and then a doxology, in a sense, to the Lord. And from that stems the tremendous portion we have here today. So remember, he gives forth this statement in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's God's desire, that God's grace and thus peace would be multiplied in our lives in the context of a real relationship with Jesus. A lot of people say they know Jesus, but they don't have a relationship with him because sin is still in the way. But God's desire for true believers, not make-believers, not fakers, but true believers is grace to you and peace be multiplied where in the context of the sphere of our relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, God wants us to grow in the grace that is in Jesus Christ, to be more dependent on him, to trust in him more and more, to function by his grace which is sufficient for all things, to recognize his power is perfected in weakness. God wants that for us because we are by our old nature independent and self-sufficient, and God wants us to rely on him and trust in him, and that's where we have genuine peace. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then from that, we have this tremendous statement, which we looked at last week. It is a life-changing statement. It's a Christian life-changing statement. Verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Tremendous, wonderful statement seeing that his divine power, God, who is all-powerful, has granted, it's not the word forgive, it means to lavishly give. He has granted to us, what does he say? Everything, and now the us are believers, everything pertaining to life 
and godliness. Everything you need for this life, everything you need for your relationship with God, that reverence and walk with Him, life and godliness, it is all provided for us. It has already been provided for us. And you might remember the context in which it's been provided. It's not some mechanical system of following Bible verses. It's not some mechanical system of doing this or that. It's through, look at the end of verse 3, through the true knowledge, genuine, full knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. It is in the context of a real relationship with Jesus Christ that we have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Everything we need. Everything we need. It is all there. And then we have this tremendous explanation that we looked at last week. And if you think you're going through it really fast right now, yeah, I am. Last week we spent the whole time on it. So feel free to grab that CD. It's really, really, really important. But notice in verse 4, he says, For by these, now that is his glorious and praiseworthy character, he has granted to us, same word, this lavish giving, this lavish giving, granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You see, true believers have escaped the corruption and ruin that comes from our own desire, our lust, and thus sin. We've escaped that through the forgiveness of sins. But we have the opportunity now within a relationship with Jesus Christ by his precious and magnificent promises to partake of his nature, to become like him. It's not that we become God. There's only one God. But we manifest his character, his character, his nature, his goodness, his kindness, his holiness, his love, all those things. We can partake of that. And he says it is through the precious and magnificent promises Precious speaks of tremendous value. It's the same word Peter used to speak of the precious blood of Christ that was spilt for us in his first letter to these people. Magnificent, it comes from the word in the Greek says great. It means the greatest, the greatest of promises. And Peter uses the word promises here, and I think he uses it obviously for a specific reason. When you think of a promise, a promise is something that someone says that they are to keep. Well, God is going to keep his word. He is faithful to his promises. They are precious and magnificent. The word of God. So in the Christian life, we have everything we need through a right relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, we have his spirit, right relationship with him through the word of God. Everything we need for life and godliness. Now, the world and the contemporary Christian world wants to say, oh, you need this, you need this, you need this. And we are deceived and suddenly pulled away from the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for every circumstance and every situation in our lives through his word. So with that in mind, we have a tremendous, tremendous statement that this has already been granted to us. It's a done deal. You see, this is Peter's last letter, and he points to, as we'll see later on in chapter 1, the sufficiency of scripture, written word. It's sufficient. 
In Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, the sufficiency of the word, all scriptures inspired by God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate for every good work. By the end of the time of the apostles, the foundation had been laid in the church. They had brought forth the word of God, and they were saying, now it's the scripture, the written word, which is sufficient. And by the way, throughout Second Peter, Peter is contrasting remembering what we already know through the Word of God versus the bad guys who twist and pervert it. So with that in mind, we have received everything we need for life and Godness through a true relationship with Jesus Christ via the truth that He has revealed by His Spirit. So now we have this tremendous portion. You might say, well, what else could He say? we got everything we need. we got everything we need. We're done, right? <laughs> well, it's true. We have everything we need. But there is a responsibility that we're going to see that God places upon us in the context of a dependent relationship. You see, spiritual growth doesn't come by osmosis. It doesn't come simply by reading your Bible and sitting in your room. There are things that God brings forth in us and calls upon us to do. As we're going to see, you go, well, you know, I've shared over and over again, apart from Christ, we can do nothing, right? Over and over again, we're not adequate to consider anything that's coming from ourselves. But yet God, within a relationship which he's provided everything, calls upon us, as we will see, to obey. And it is a manifestation of the character of Christ. And it will show you if you are fruitful and useful for his kingdom. Okay, so with that in mind, I think we're going to see that God calls us to do something. That we are to obey the Lord in the context of understanding that he has fully supplied everything, but that is going to be worked out in the context of faith. And if it's not working out in the context of faith, you are not fruitful or useful. If all these things, not a few, but every single one, okay? Now there's different levels because he talks about increasing, okay? It's not saying perfectly. Now let's read through our passage again. Go back to verse 2 and right up through our passage, okay? Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. We were called into relationship by his glorious, praiseworthy character. And that same character is what brought about, notice, For by these he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine issue. You don't grow and become more like Christ apart from his word. That's just reality, right? Okay? And then he says here, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, and then our passage. Now, for this very reason also it's connected. Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness, love. Now we're going to see in this list of things that they are connected to one another, that they build upon one another. It's written in a specific order for a specific reason. And they build on one another. And they are qualities, as we'll see in a moment, that as a whole, we should have as believers, and we should be increasing in them. And if we don't have them, something's wrong. We may have forgotten our former purification from sins. We've left the core of our relationship with Jesus, okay? 
where we're going to see that possibly it's an evidence that you're not going to enter his kingdom, that you really don't know him, if it's not a quality that's qualities that you have. So with that in mind, let's look at it. So first of all, I want to make some initial observations about the structure of this passage. That should be helpful. He says in verse 5, Now for this very reason also, or literally, and in the same also, it's connected to what he just said. We've been given everything for life and godliness. We've escaped the corruption of the world by lust. We can partake of his nature through the word of God in our relationship with Jesus Christ. In the context of that, for true believers, he says, now for this very reason also, and for the same also. And then we have verses 5 through 11, okay? It's so important that we recognize in this passage that he is not saying, go out and do this stuff. He's not saying, okay, go do this, then do this. I got a list. Okay, I got to do the next thing. I got to do the next thing. He talks about actually doing them, as we'll see, but in the context of God providing everything through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the context. We can't miss that, okay? So the context is God supplying everything. Now, secondly, I want to point out the main verb in this statement, okay? If you look in your Bibles... It says supply, supply in most versions. Some versions will say add to. Uh, That's the main verb. Add to, you know, so you have the statement here. You have the statement. Now, for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. The word supply, that's the main verb. That is the imperative command. God is commanding us, believers, to do these things. God is actually saying, do these things. And then along with this, there's a connected. Now, I was horrible in English, so it's amazing I can even do this. God is very gracious. But there is a connected participle, okay? And that is a verb, basically, that connects to this other verb. As we are supplying, we are to be applying, as we'll see, or giving or making, as you'll see, every effort or all diligence. Supply these things while making every effort by applying all diligence. That's the context. So as I supply, it's in the context of applying all diligence. We'll see that. And also, the third portion that is extremely important, which some interpreters, I think, have made mistakes here, when it says, in your faith, supply, well, some people take the faith as the first one. Supply, faith, then they go down the list. No, if you read it in its original language, in your faith talks about how things are supplied. It covers every single one. Every single one. This list is in the context of faith. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.